welcome to Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vacker, and I'm your co-host today, and in studio with Pastor Peter Martin. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Doing good, Ben. It's good, good to see good. you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Had a good weekend, a little trip to Phoenix. Nice. Hung out with uh, our president of our ministry, uh, Faith Search International. It was great as they get ready to head back north to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Very cool. Long little road trip for him and his wife. <clears throat> Need to visit with them. Took the twins swimming for the first time. Nice. That was fun. Yeah. Well, we're so glad to be here. This is a weekday Bible answer program where people uh, chime in with questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, how we apply the scriptures to our lives, uh, how do we live out our faith. And uh, we would encourage you, if you have a question about the Bible, about how to interpret a specific passage, um, or perhaps you're struggling with, is faith reasonable? Do I have good reasons for believing that God exists or trusting the words of the Bible? I was just listening to a podcast, <laughs> and it was a clip of a podcast that they were talking about in a different podcast where uh, someone was saying, well, you Christians ought to believe such and such. Uh, and then when the person said, well, that's not what the Bible says, the Bible says this. And the person says, well, the Bible's been translated so many times. How you know?" So <laughs> it was kind of ironic, but you, you get what I'm saying is that um, sometimes we we struggle with what culture is constantly screaming in our ears about uh, what we should and should not believe about the scriptures. And so if you have questions pertaining to that, I'd encourage you to join us. You can chime in by following us live on our social media platforms. This is Facebook. If you go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson, join this broadcast, go to the chat comment section and just leave your question there and we will address it here on the program. We also live stream simultaneously to YouTube. And of course, if you are following along on some of these social media platforms, we'd encourage you to subscribe and hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services, special events, including this program every week right to this YouTube channel. So if you go to youtube.com forward slash at a reason for hope 546, you can uh, stay in tune with uh, all that we do here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Arizona, where we live stream from. And uh, we are now posting some of the broadcasts from this program after the fact, not live, on Rumble. Uh, hopefully we'll be live streaming there soon. But if you happen to catch us on Rumble, if you're one of those folks who says, I am a Rumble only fan, <laughs> then please follow us. We'd love to grow our audience there. And uh, of course, if you would like to just avoid social media altogether, we live stream as well to our website. That's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. Go to the navigation, hit watch live. Again, all of our services, including this program, A Reason for Hope, every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. You can not only watch the program, listen in, but you can leave questions in the chat section of the live stream right on our website as well as make prayer requests. So we'd encourage you to take advantage of that. We have an app. So if you want to uh, download that, you'll have access to all our archives of our sermons. We are a fellowship that teaches uh, book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So if you have a question about the Bible and we're not live, <laughs> you can go to our archive sermons and see if one of our teachers, our senior pastor, Scott, has uh, Scott Richards has taught on that passage, and you can kind of get a handle of what God's Word is saying in that specific section of Scripture. Uh, just go to the Apple or Google Play Store. You can download the app. Not only does it have a nifty Bible, but you can also join and create <coughs> chat groups. 
you can look at our calendar of events and much much more that you can do with the uh, app there <clears throat> and finally if you want to add our uh, streaming services to your channels on the Amazon and Roku products all Amazon fire products and Roku you can add the channels there and if you want to avoid any kind of public asking of questions you'd prefer to keep your questions maybe a little bit more private you can just email us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com that's questions for hope all spelled out no numbers at gmail.com and lastly I'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. Um, you, in fact, if you wanted to tweet a question uh, when he's here on uh, Wednesdays through Fridays doing the program, we can tackle your questions from there as well. So his Twitter handle is at ScottR4H. Well, I think I've covered all our bases. <laughs> and uh, now that uh, you know where you can engage with us we'll take a moment peter if you wouldn't mind praying for our time we'll get started with today's program yeah absolutely well, father we love you so much and we're grateful for you you give us so much grace you give us so much mercy and love within our lives we want to dedicate this small amount of time to you lord that we would be able to focus in on your truth your your goodness lord and your beauty uh, i pray that you would speak to us god from your scriptures lord you would allow this time to be a benefit to all those listening and that me and Adrian would be able to speak and to articulate ourselves in a way that honors and glorifies you. We're grateful for you, God, and in your name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, how do you want to start today? You want to tackle some questions, or do you have some <laughs> philosophically rich idea brewing in that brain of yours? <laughs> so last week, uh, we talked about the Renaissance and mm. how it was the ideals of Christianity that was able to bring Western culture into the Renaissance period. And then it was a destruction of those values that led to the decay of the Renaissance period. And in it, I made the comment multiple times without defending it, that the premise of the Renaissance period was that beauty correlated to the nature of God. So when we call something beautiful, what we actually mean is that it in some way is corresponding to the invisible image of God. And that's why we appreciate it, and that's why we value it, and things like that. Now that statement would insinuate that beauty is objective, that when we call something beautiful, we are making an objective statement that could either be falsified or it could be verified. That is a very controversial statement nowadays. In fact, I would say even most Christians would say, well, no, 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 you know, you can't really account for taste. We all have different flavors of what we like and what we dislike. Isn't beauty really in the eye of the beholder after all? And, you know, we, we can't really say that beauty is objective. It's more of like a subjective thing. And that's what I was always taught growing up. Yeah. It was like uh, whether you like chocolate or vanilla ice cream, it's yeah. subjective. Exactly. When I talk, teach apologetics to uh, youth, when I talk about the difference between subjective truth and objective truth, I usually point to things like tastes and flavors. And I think I may have been even obviously mistakenly used <laughs> uh, visual aesthetics as a case for subjective truth versus objective truth. Mm. That in our culture, we've been kind of conditioned to believe that only scientific truths right. are objective and everything else is up for grabs. Right. Now, uh, that is a easy mistake to make, and it started happening, I'll explain the de-evolution in a second, but it started happening in the late 1800s. Uh, so that's after the Renaissance period is starting to peter out and go into uh, Impressionist art and Expressionist art and things like that. 
Um, and at the end of the Renaissance period, the end of this kind of move of the arts and sciences, that's when you start getting this concept of what we'd call subjective beauty. That beauty is subjective and it's just in the eye of the beholder. In fact, that statement comes from the late 1800s. <clears throat> and C.S. Lewis writing in the early 1900s, I believe he wrote this book in 1930s, 1940s, he wrote a book called The Abolition of Man, in which he predicted that if you destroy the value of objective beauty, you will altogether destroy objective values uh, in completeness, right? So uh, it will start with objective beauty, and then it will move into objective goodness, meaning morality or ethics, and then it will finally culminate in objective truth, in which all things are subjective now, and everything is just whatever we think. It's my truth. It's just what I think is right. It's what I think is wrong, and what I think is good, and what I think is evil. So this is a quote from The Abolition of Man, and he's predicting it based on a textbook that is being distributed to kids around his age, uh, around his day. And in the textbook, the two authors are commenting on a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And Samuel Taylor Coleridge was a romantic poet, and we've talked about him before. And he talks about two guys who approach like a cataract, and in the cataract is uh, uh, essentially like a waterfall that's coming down. It's very beautiful. And one guy says, man, this is sublime. And the other guy says, this is pretty. And Coleridge says that he immediately affirmed the guy who said it was sublime, and he was disgusted by the guy who merely called it pretty. And he goes on to, to talk about the distinction between those values. But the writers of this particular textbook, they say, well, you know, actually both people are wrong. What they should have said is the waterfall causes feelings of prettiness or beauty or sublimity within my heart, but it's not actually beautiful. I'm saying something about my internal experience with the waterfall. I'm not actually saying anything about the waterfall. Now, this is what C.S. Lewis says about that. He says, until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believe that the universe is such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous to reality believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive, but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our contempt. The man who called the cataract sublime was not intending simply to describe his own emotions about it. He was also claiming that the object was one which merited those emotions. So what Lewis is arguing, and he continues throughout the book, is he says, yeah, when I call something true, kind of like what you're talking about with scientific truth, that's something that's observable, it's repeatable, it's something that I can test, it's something that I can prove, and it, it appeals to my intellect for sure. But our experiences with beauty are deep emotional experiences. And to call those merely subjective, not only does it decry beauty as a whole, but it also decries the entire element of arts as an institution, because the whole uh, the whole prevailing theory of the arts is that I can share an experience with you. But if all experiences are merely subjective, then what exactly am I sharing with you? I can't share an, uh, an experience with you. I can only tell you how the experience affected me, and then I can give you some sort of a message or a truth that I believe is contained within the experience. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Mm -hmm. But if I don't believe in objective beauty, I can't believe in the institution of the arts at all they have to die. And once those die, like I said, if my internal experiences are merely subjective, then what's to say my experiences with right and wrong aren't subjective? So when I see you stealing or something like that, I could say, well, that seems wrong to me, 
But there are certain cultures that put up with behavior like that, especially towards enemy combatants and things like that. There are cultures that believe that prostitution is good. There are cultures that believe that prostitution is bad. There are cultures that like homosexuality. There are cultures that don't. There are cultures that like pedophilia. There are cultures that don't. There are cultures that like bestiality. Who are we really to say that there is an objective standard by which we must conduct ourselves? And then once you get to that standard, it would be very easy to break down the standard of truth. Well, if I perceive something as true, who are you to tell me that my perception of reality is incorrect? If I perceive myself as a woman, who are you to tell me that I am not a woman based on some sort of a standard that exists outside of me, right? So Lewis is saying that if we lose beauty, we lose everything. And most Christians that were listening to him at the time were like, oh, okay, Lewis, you're, you're being a little bit reactionary here. Okay, so the art, modern art isn't that great and you know, things like that. But I, I think you're being a little bit too extreme here. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, look where we are. It happened, right? And he, he's not a prophet. But he's someone who understands human nature, and he understands how we operate as, as human beings. If you get rid of objective standards of beauty, you get rid of objective standards of everything. Because again, what the medieval theologians figured out, which was revolutionary, and what produced the fervor and the heat of the Renaissance period, was that all objective standards have their corollary to God. That the reason why we call something true is because it correlates in some way to God's reality. The reason why we call certain behaviors good and certain behaviors evil is because, again, it correlates in some way to God's character and being. And the reason why we call certain things beautiful and the reason why we call certain things ugly is because it correlates some, in some way to God's invisible image. So uh, one more quote, and then I know that you have something you want to you wanna quote as well. Um, this is from a book called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God. That is the literal title of this book. Uh, and it, it has two dozen or so arguments for the existence of God. One of the arguments is from Objective Beauty. And the guy who wrote this particular article is a guy named Philip Talon, really bright guy. And he says this, If God in his very being is the source of, source of the true, the good, and the beautiful, held together within his unity, we would expect that aesthetic judgments to require considerations of the full range of value. Christian theism readily explains why perception of truth and goodness is essential to sound aesthetic judgment. Third, like moral judgments, aesthetic judgment requires development over time. Good taste is not our default setting. It seems true that we have basic aesthetic and moral judgments to work with. This explains how there is basic con consensus about morality and beauty, but it also explains how there could be so much divergence of judgment on more complex issues. So here's what he's saying. I can't just expect my child to understand what's good, right? I have to explain to him what's right and what's wrong. If I were just to allow my daughter to do what seems good to her, she would end up a sociopath and no one would want to be around her. I have to explain to her and I have to punish her to show her these behaviors. I know you want to do them, but it doesn't make them good. I know this behavior may even benefit you momentarily, but it's still not good. It's bad. And therefore, I'm going to discipline you so that you behave correctly. What he's saying is, why wouldn't we expect that aesthetic judgments are similar to this? That as a child, what, what children find beautiful is actually kind of ugly usually, right? So, uh, you know, if I plot my kid in front of the TV and I just show them whatever they would be naturally pulled towards, it would probably be something kind of ugly. It'd be the Wiggles or Blue's Clues or something like that. And, you know, some parents out there are like, well, you know, you're being kind of judgmental. Isn't that just entertainment for kids? Well, it's entertainment for kids, but the question is, is, is it developing their aesthetic sense or is it 
validating a bad aesthetic sense, right? Which is what children have. And that would be my conclusion is that it's validating a bad aesthetic sense. Those are objectively bad shows, right? I'm not saying they're bad morally, some of them are, but I am saying that they're bad aesthetically, right? Aesthetics, by the way, it's from this Greek word that means of the senses, and it's just, it's standards of beauty, if you want to put it that way. It's the philosophical study of beauty. So it's bad aesthetically. It's ugly aesthetically. It's not rising to a high level of art. It's something that is not very good, um, and therefore we shouldn't really be looking at it as good. It doesn't mean it can't entertain you. It just means that it's not good. Uh, so we'll talk more about the distinctions between taste and whatnot. But any, anything you'd like to add or clarify before we move on? Well, I was just <clears throat> curious if, like, theologians will, or I should say a Christian apologist will use the moral argument for God's existence. Yes. And the argument goes something like this, that, that if objective moral values exist, then mm -hmm. God must exist. And right. then they begin to give examples of why <clears throat> we intuitively right. understand certain things to always be morally wrong, regardless of time, culture, situation. There are certain things, like, for example, uh, torturing babies for fun is always immoral, evil, all the time. There isn't a time or place where it's acceptable to torture babies for fun. Mm. Being that we all agree that there are some things that are just wrong all the time. Now, again, this is pointing to intuition, because right. there isn't um, necessarily a point of reference. Obviously, you can go to Scripture, right. but aside from using that as a source of, of truth, mm. you know, we have to rely, like, for example, when the Bible describes that before the law, the Gentiles had the law written on their hearts, right. the idea being that there is a general intuition of what right and wrong is. Mm. And if that intuition is real, right. that makes objective moral good and objective moral bad right true objectively right. and so if that is all true then god must exist because you can't have objective moral values without an objective moral giver right uh, otherwise it's just your opinion versus my opinion your culture versus my culture your time versus my time right. i can't say that those who argued for slavery hundreds of years ago <laughs> were wrong right they were actually right at their time and now we're right during our time. Right. And so you end up a conundrum with, you know, not really saying anything. Right. Are you suggesting that when it comes to beauty, it's a real similar argumentation? Yes. <clears throat> but we're still at a loss with a way to measure, mm -hmm. which is always the problem with moral ethics, mm -hmm. is there's all kinds of arguments for, you know, ethics that are end up being, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Things that end up working at utility, utilitarian right. ethics, right. where it's just well, it 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 meets the end that we want in mind. Um, right. But is there similar arguments that people who would argue against the objectivity of beauty would argue the same way? Yeah, against it. So I think that the argument from objective beauty is even more intuitive than the argument from objective morality. Wow. Um, and and the reason why is because people will say, well, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. You don't believe that. You don't, nobody actually believes that. Hmm. So I, I have a couple pictures that I wanted Adrian to put up just so we could see this. Okay, so the first one is by Michelangelo. This is a very famous statue. It's called the Pieta. And it's a depiction of Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary, holding her son after the crucifixion. And those of you guys who could see it online, you're watching online, you could see the statue. It's incredibly beautiful. You don't need to know anything about the background that I just gave you. 
to see the depiction as being beautiful, right? The techniques that he used to get the marble to look that way, the way in which he depicts emotion and sadness, but also utilizing the crucifixion as a subject matter to talk about the promise of life, taking the most tragic event in history and turning it into the most hopeful event in history, right? There are so many layers to this depiction that it almost boggles the mind. It's so beautiful that people from all cultures have gone to see the Pieta, right? People from China and South America and Germany and France and uh, Canada, right? People from all over the world for 500 years have gone to see the Pieta in person. Now, right? is it beautiful, be just a side note, but is it beautiful because it accurately, accurately depicts human expression and emotion? Could it have been just as beautiful if it had been abstract or not in the genuine likeness of humans, mm. but kind of lets you know that these are people and they're kind of expressing, you know, you get, get yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, so, so again, the, the whole point of beauty is, well, I'm sorry, the whole point of art is art is our representation of our inner experience, right? So I experience something and then I represent it utilizing some sort of an art medium, right? Mm -hmm. I can verbally interact and represent thoughts to you, right? So if I have intellectual thoughts, I could represent those with words and I could give those to you either by dialogue or by writing down in a book or something like that. Experiences can't be delivered that way. You need a different medium. You need to represent that with something else, right? And that's why we utilize different mediums of art, right? I could use poetry, which would include simile, metaphor, symbolism, things like that, or I could use a painting or a picture. So an art medium, although they're very varied, number one is it has to accurately represent the human experience. Number two, there are different qualities of art that we could talk about, but it all, all these things that I'm, uh, that I'm mentioning, they're all founded on this idea of, is there objective beauty? Because why would I try to standardize different types of expectations in art unless I believe that something could be more or less beautiful, right? If it's all subjective, then why would I create any standard of beauty? Why would I create techniques? If me on a piece of paper right now with a crayon could make a picture of Mary holding Jesus and it's just, it's the same subject matter, same emotions are being conveyed, and I could hold it up and say, well, this is the same thing. It's just as beautiful as that. You would know intuitively you're wrong. You're wrong. That's not true. That is not as beautiful as that. And I, no matter how many eloquent arguments I could give you of like, well, no, 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 you see, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. And you see, this green crayon, I think, way better represents the marble that Michelangelo utilized in order to make the Pieta. And I, I think that it's just your subjective culture that tells you that yeah. this is not as good. You would a, know that it's wrong. That makes a lot of sense of why women who are considering terminating a pregnancy almost always decide not to once they've seen the heartbeat monitor and have seen an image of the child. It's the experience, not the intellectual understanding that transforms a person. Hmm. Now, different mediums, so the question is, is, can there be a medium that's superior to another? So I could succeed in a particular medium, but it still might be inferior to another one. So let me give you an example. Uh, if I took classical music, for instance, that's a high medium of musical art. If I succeed in classical music, that's really, really difficult to do. However, I could succeed in, say, Korean pop. That's a much lower standard of musical excellence, 
right? The the tones that are being expected. How dare are, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the vocal qualities are much lower. The even the range and the scope and the magnitude. You know, you talk about symphonies and orchestras, right? The the uh, the movements sometimes last hours, right? When you're going through different uh, orchestral pieces, where you know K-pop's like three minutes long. So it's it's not that the K-pop doesn't it doesn't succeed in its own genre. It's that one, can one genre be better than another? And impressionistic art is the same way. Can someone succeed, uh, not impressionistic, sorry, abstract art functions in the same way. Can someone succeed in abstract art? Can they be better mm -hmm. than some other painter with an abstract mm -hmm. genre? Yes. But is the abstract genre as good as impressionistic art or something like that. This and this strikes a key nerve for me because mm. uh, I went I was in junior high and high school when the concept of multicultural were being greatly introduced into the public school system. And we were taught to never question or even get upset of celebrating other cultures that are not your own. Right. And, they, and a, a lot of times it was at the expense of Western culture yeah. to the point where they would even deny there is such a thing as Western culture yeah. in, in the American West sense. Absolutely. And, and, but when I would go overseas and was be going through you know, missionary training and mm -hmm. the idea of going to foreign cultures, almost all the time the same concepts would be taught that you don't ever judge the other culture. That's just a different way of doing things. Mm -hmm. There's no right or wrong. I mean, we were being taught this in missionology classes, right. and and I always just used to think, you know, I, I think some <laughs> cultures are just worse. Yeah. I mean, why? Not what's wrong with just agreeing that? Like, for example, I was in in, in a country, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> let's just say it was very dirty everywhere all the time. Yeah. And I remember my host. I had a water bottle yeah. and I said is there a trash can I can put this in he goes oh I'll take care of it for you just he, he takes it and he goes to the window we're at a university he goes yeah. to the window and just chucks it right out the window <laughs> and I'm just thinking I was taught that I'm not to say anything that this right. is part of their culture and to do so I was a I was like <laughs> very upset yeah. that yeah. a Christian brother yeah. would litter yeah. the planet that God told us to take charge over and take care of right you know, I, I feel I view it as a moral mandate to right. take care of our surroundings. Right. This was the opposite. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so of course you could judge between. And again, we do it all the time. You have to dull your senses in order to do this. Um, so let's this would be easier. So instead of going from like European culture to African culture, let's go from one segment of Western culture to another. Right. So a diff, just a different time period. So we just looked at the Pieta. Now let's look at a very famous painting from a guy named Jackson Pollock. So this is 1900s, mid-1900s, and he is an abstract artist. This is his most famous painting. It is called The Number Five, right? Now, again, those of you guys who can't see this, look it up later. If you're driving especially, pull over and then, and then look this up. Don't do it on the, the drive home. But look at The Number Five and just compare it. Compare that to the Pieta and tell me that they are objectively equally beautiful. There's no way you can do that with a straight face. Now you could say, well, you know, Jackson Pollock, he's expressing something that's even more complex than what Michelangelo is expressing, and he's utilizing these different abstract qualities. You could give me all that mumbo jumbo, but just from an aesthetic sense, any five-year-old can look at those two and say, no, that one's better. Right, now you could say that the message is more complex from Jackson Pollock, which I disagree with, but even if I agreed with you, we're not talking about message, we're talking about aesthetics, we're talking about beauty one is clearly more beautiful than the other, right? 
that's just a difference between a couple hundred years. So you have one, this is a completely different culture, right? The culture that produced the Pieta is a completely different culture than the one that produced Jackson Pollock. It's a completely different picture. Um, let's use a different medium of art to express this even more firmly. So this is Percy B. Shelley. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. This is the first couple lines from a poem that he wrote called Love's Philosophy. It says this, the fountains mingle with the river and the rivers with the ocean. The winds of heaven mix forever with a sweet emotion. Nothing in the world is single, all things by a law divine. In one spirit meet and mingle, why not I with thine? Okay, so that is a poem about love. And we've talked a little about Shelley uh, in the past on the show, and we've talked about how he was a bit of a degenerate, and <laughs> he was a bit of a womanizer. But you wouldn't get that from the poem that he wrote because he does, he's coming from a culture that believes in objective beauty. He's coming from a culture that believes in love and goodness and purity. And he can't help himself but represent those types of cultural intuitions in the poetry he's writing, even though his philosophy actually looks a lot more like today, like the way that we look at love and sex, than in his day. But just keep that in mind. So that's one poem. I, I hesitate to call this poetry, but this is the winner of the Grammys of 2023. It was a, it was a song called Unholy by uh, Sam Smith and Kim Petras, okay? Listen to this song. Mummy don't know daddy's getting hot at the body shop doing something unholy. He sat back while she's dropping it. She be popping it. Yeah, she put it down slowly. Oe oh, oe oh, he left the kids at hoe oh, oe oh, oh. Is one better than the other, right? I mean, are you really gonna say that, well, no, no, these are both just artistic expressions and you know, who are you in your bigoted, 21st century worldview to say that Percy B. Shelley is objectively a better poet than Sam Smith and Kim Petras. One is clearly better than the other. But you have to hear the tune. So yeah. It's the tune that gets people. That the really lyrics, sells They don't it. even know the lyrics. They just <laughs> rhymes. And, and, uh, and of course, the video is astonishingly. Yeah. <laughs> and even, even from an aesthetic perspective, there's something in the arts where, again, because it's representing emotion, because it's representing experience, there's something in the arts called subtlety, right? If I have to beat you over the head with what you're supposed to be experiencing while you're going through my text, I have <clears throat> failed as an artist. So if I am in, I hate this in movies, right? So in movies, when there's a voiceover, that's almost always an example of a director being lazy. He understands I didn't really nail it. I didn't really stick the landing in that scene that I just shot. So I'm going to just have an actor come in for a half day and do a voiceover to tell you how you should have experienced that particular scene, mm. right? It's the laziest form of storytelling out there, right? That is an example of being heavy handed. And that's why we use phrases the movie like project that. where I was going to yeah. open with a voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're supposed to show, you're supposed to have them experience it. Mm. This, these lyrics lack all subtlety because, again, the objective standards of beauty have been thrown out the window in our culture. But isn't this intentional? I mean, isn't that what deconstruction is? Is yes. to say there is no objective moral values, there is no objective. Really, what's, what, they're, what they're really driving at is there is no God. That's right. If there's no God, then there's no capital T objective truth, exactly. there's no transcendence, and now I can be whatever I want, whatever my whatever suits my fancy, yeah. as the saying goes, is acceptable. It's my truth. My, I can now lift up whatever, the, whichever direction the wind blows yeah. in my emotions and my desires of my flesh, <clears throat> and it's ex as equally beautiful and acceptable as 
that work of art. Right. And that's it. Is it's, that the driving? It's man desiring to be God. Right. It's mm -hmm. man desiring to be God. So in other words, from the Renaissance period, what the medieval theologians are saying is that we as human beings have the opportunity to participate in the eternal beauty of God by creating things that are more or less coalescing to his eternal image. What we're saying today is we're just creating things. Not only am I creating things, but I'm not participating with anything. I alone ascribe value to this particular piece of work, right? It doesn't matter what you intended. If you draw a picture, I as the observer have more power over that piece of art than you, the creator, do because I have become God. I get to ascribe value to it based on my own aesthetic judgment. That's the danger of what we're in. It is, again, the Nietzschean philosophy of the ubermensch, the higher man that can create his own value system from whole cloth. That idea is we are gods now. I look at your work and I say, I ascribe it value, and that becomes objective for me, right? And if you don't like it, that's just your opinion, you know, and who's to say which way or the other, right? But again, we all know that that's not true. We all know that one is better than the other. But how do these level. works become popular unless people are celebrating the deconstruction, or, or I shouldn't say that, they're celebrating the rebellion. Yeah. I, I like that this is not what my parents and my grandparents right. and my forefathers right. <laughs> appreciated. Yeah. I am doing, I am enjoying this for the sake of enjoying it, not because it's enjoyable. So there's two reasons. One is ego. The second one is specific to this song, and that is low-level base appetite. So let me explain both of those. So if I am simply participating in beauty, right, if you and I are both looking at a painting, and let's say I'm very refined in the arts. I'm not, I'm not, I try to study, I try to get a little bit better, but I'm not very refined in the arts. But if you and I, let's say I am though, and you and I are looking at the same picture and we both perceive it as beautiful, right? And you don't know anything about art and I am very refined in the arts. My ego doesn't like that because I've done all this study and I've done all this research. And so I want to be able to construct a type of beauty that only the elite, only the sophisticated in the culture can appreciate. Right? This is the whole point of the very famous story, The Emperor Has No Clothes. Mm. Right? So in the story, The Emperor Has No Clothes, those of you guys don't know, right? these hucksters, these con men come into a town and they say, we're going to create this beautiful garment for your emperor, but it's so sophisticated that only the most intelligent amongst you can actually see it. Everyone else will just see nothing. They'll see him as being naked. And obviously they're not doing anything. They're creating nothing. But they're telling everyone they're creating this garment and that the emperor is wearing it. And then obviously a kid yells out in the audience like the emperor is naked, right? Because only the kid could be honest. Everyone else is pretending to be in awe and enamored by the emperor's new clothes, even though there aren't any clothes. The emperor is naked. In the same way, these sophisticants, right, these egoists, they, they want to believe they're so much better than you and I that only they in their refined palates can observe, say, the piss Christ which is literally a crucifix submerged in urine, and say, oh, how beautiful that is. Look, look, at, look at how bold and daring that piece of art is. Um, or the, I can't remember her name, but she literally just had her unkempt bed delivered to a museum, and people can now go look at it in, in the museum. Uh, or in the Los Angeles Museum of Art, they have a 23-ton boulder just sitting in the, in the museum. And, they and that's art. And that's art. Right. So, oh, yeah, you know, you, you unsophisticated person, you could look at a Van Gogh painting and find it beautiful. But can you find beauty in this unkempt bed or the beauty in this jar of urine with a cross submerged? In, right. It's, it's an ego trip in which people claim to be sophisticated by liking high art. 
but there's nothing there. The emperor has no clothes. Or atonal music is another example of this. You could Google it later. But it's music that has no harmony. It's just it's just completely dis, disharmonious tones played over one another. And it's it's garbage. It's terrible. Everyone knows it's garbage. But oh, how sophisticated I am because I like atonal music. Uh, so the first one's ego. The second one is bass desires. So what is appealing about Sam Smith's song is actually not the beauty contained within it. If you, if you look at Percy Shelley's poem and you understand what he's talking about, it is highly sensual, but it doesn't activate your sensuality when you listen to it. And the reason why is because it's so beautiful and it has so many corollaries to nature that you're not moved at your base appetite of just sensuality. You're moved emotionally first and you're into romance and things like that. Very similar with the Song of Solomon. There are a lot of very sensual elements to the Song of Solomon, but it's so beautiful and it's so subtle, and there's so many elements of nature compounded within it that you're not moved sensually. You're actually moved emotionally, which is much harder to do. When you listen to Sam Smith's song, and especially if you were to watch the music video that accompanies it, what moves you are just your base appetites. It's just sensuality. So very, very easy example to show. It's like, how can I create beauty? Right? How could I create beauty? Well, I could either, you know, study and work on cinematography and things like that and try to craft a, a film that a lot of people are going to resonate with and express a range of human emotions and get a good storyboard going and get actors that could represent these uh, pieces of dialogue in a convincing way. Or, you know, I could just take a naked woman, take a picture of her and sell it. And many people will buy it. And probably more people will buy that if it's an attractive enough woman than the people who will go to view my, you know, independent film that has all the nuance within it. Why? It's not because one has more artistic value than the other. It's because one more easily resonates with the base level of appetite within man. And it's a sick culture. It's a very sick culture that can't tell the difference. That just says, I like this. And they never dig any deeper to figure out why they like it as opposed <clears throat> to something greater, right? So the number one song a couple years ago was a song by Cardi B. I'm not even gonna say what it was because of just how crass it was. Even the title of it's yeah, very crass. Yeah. Uh, but it was the number one song all over the world. Now, it's again, it's a very sick culture that can't tell that the crassness of the lyrics are not beautiful. They merely represent your basest, most ugly, most deformed, most mm -hmm. debased desires for pure sexual contact with just whoever you can get, right? There's something almost dehumanizing about it because of how crass it is. Well, it kind of, <clears throat> one of the big signs that we were already in this direction was the U.S. government versus Larry Flint, hmm. where I think it was Penthouse Magazine. Yeah. And so this is printed pornography, photographic pornography, and they were trying to get it uh, shut down, I guess, for indecency. I don't remember what the case was against Larry Flint. I just know that he won the case, but I just remember the one of the dialogues when they took the prosecution's attorney, and I think they put him on the stand, and they said, have you ever gone to see art hmm. by some of the great masters? Yes. And have you ever gone to these museums? And yes. And have you ever seen art depicting naked nudity by these great masters? Yes. And he goes, then how, do you t how can you say to us that that is art and what my client is producing is, uh, I forget the the term that he used, but yeah. Or smut, a, yeah. yeah, dirty or smut or something like that. <clears throat> and he didn't really have a response. Hmm. And 
I remember hearing a, a, a Christian apologist describing the situation, and I think he may have referred to uh, something that C.S. Lewis had written about the spirit of the age, mm. and how when they talked, I guess the spirit of the age was, uh, I wish I could remember the reference, but <clears throat> the spirit of the age was saying that, oh, you're drinking that cow's milk. Well, you know, that's just excrement from a cow. And then it says, no, you lie. You have lost the differentiation between what nature has meant for nourishment and right. what nature has meant for refuse. Right. And so the idea is that <clears throat> that's what the evil one does. Right. They conflate beauty and ugliness and right. dirtiness, uh, honor and what is sacred with secular or <laughs> Depravity, evil, yeah. deprived. And uh, they conflate the two to say that there is no differentiation. Right. Uh, it's just excrement from a cow. You, right. you call it milk, but it's really just right. you know, excrement. Right. And no, great point. So real quick, because I want to get into some questions. Um, a couple objections that we have to deal with is, what about taste? Because I have different tastes than you, and you have different tastes than me. Does that say anything about objective beauty? Well, again, once you accept the premise of objective beauty, each medium is going to have its own standards, right? So there are standards in the magician's community of what constitutes a good show versus a bad show, right? You can't just say, well, I did something that is unexplainable, and therefore it's magic, and therefore it's brilliant, and therefore you have to applaud me. No, th there are different standards for uh, harmony within the show, different acts within the show, how things are going to be presented. Of course, yeah. Right? All and there's these definitely almost a unanimous understanding of that was beautiful. Right. Like, when they executed that routine, that was beautiful. Absolutely. Because it was done accurately, perfectly, brilliantly, not just the philosophy behind the storytelling, but also the execution of the moves, right. as well as the uniqueness and the originality of the creator. Right. So every standard, you know, whether it's magic or music or, you know, novels, movies, whatever, they have their own standards within them of what constitutes the good. Right. Now, what ended up breaking down this kind of idea was the Impressionists. So the Impressionists went against the standards of beauty that were represented to them, guys like Claude Monet and things like that. And every time there's standards that are set up, there are always going to be people who defy genre, who are like, I'm going to push against the standard. But that only works if you still uphold the standard, right? So you're no longer a rebel if you annihilate the standard. You're only a rebel if you keep the standard intact and you go to the edges of that standard and you push the boundaries a little bit. That's what the Impressionists did. But the philosophy that was undergirding that time period was there is no God, right? And because that was the philosophy that was undergirding that time, it led to the natural de-evolution of standards altogether, right? So we need to be careful about that. There's one thing about pushing boundaries as opposed to annihilating boundaries. There's a big difference between the two. Uh, the other thing is when we talk about taste. So again, you could train taste, but I mean, again, we say these things all the time. Have you ever told someone they have bad taste? That is an ascent to objective beauty. What you're saying is you have taste, you like this, but you shouldn't like it. That's what you're telling them, right? We also have movies that we say, well, it's my, my guilty pleasure. What do you mean by that? I know this is bad. I know this is not good, but I like it anyway, right? That's what you're saying. You're assenting to objective beauty when you say that, right? If it's subjective, then there's no such thing as guilty pleasure. It's just, I like it because it excites pleasure in me. Therefore, it's beautiful. How but it's not worth saying. How do you converse with someone who, you know, there's certain styles of music where I just think that's, it, like you said, it's atonal. It's intentionally 
not pleasant. So once you <laughs> develop a sophistication within your taste, so usually what happens is if something is not my taste, if I'm really unsophisticated, I will say that's bad. If you develop your palate a little bit, what you'll be able to recognize is this isn't my taste, but I still recognize it's good, right? So I could like, let's say I don't like Mexican food. I do like Mexican food, but let's just say for the sake of argument, I don't. I live in Tucson, I have to, right? So. <laughs> If I, I could go to a restaurant and, and I could one third taste of me it. would be very offended. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I could taste it. It'd be like, hey, I don't like spicy food. This is not my taste. Therefore, I don't like it. Or I could say, hey, it's not my taste. But I also see how they harmonize flavors, and I see it's not just something bland. I see how they're doing it. I see how the I see the techniques that they're utilizing and how they didn't burn it. They didn't, you know. I could at least appreciate it, even if I don't like it. The same thing is true with music. I could listen to mariachi music. Now, I legitimately don't like mariachi music. But I could at least listen to it and I could recognize good mariachi music versus bad mariachi music. And I could at least recognize I see the talent and the goodness. I see why people like it. I don't. But I could see the objective beauty within it. I grew up right? with it. And I actually, every time I hear a really good Mexican song. I, a really good beat. Yeah. yeah brings back good memories. <laughs> no, it's good. And so... Again, once we develop these things, we can understand how these things work. And they're, they're very simple to, to grab, by the way. But the alternative is, again, throwing out standards and saying there is only subjectivity within our, our observations of beauty, which is just goes beyond human intuition. So this if is beautiful, can, uh, but yeah. is it subjective or objective? <laughs> oh, that is beautiful objectively. <laughs> the three boys and the misses. And yeah, again, uh, C.S. Lewis points out like, okay, if we're talking about internal experiences, what about our internal experiences with beauty when it comes to things like family? And mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis said like, hey, I don't really like kids, but I understand that's a defect in me. Right? It's not a defect in the kid. That's a defect in me. I need to change that. Mm -hmm. So once we, again, once we accept the existence of God, we accept the existence of standards that derive from his being. And then once you do that, then you can build on top of it. You kill God. You kill all standards. So... God's existence being a reality as a foundation for truth, beauty, goodness, was what really spearheaded the Renaissance. That's right. And then it was co-opted by Secularist. secularists who recognized and would even pay homage to God, right. but eternally were atheists right. and were riding on the backs of yeah. the ideology yeah. while rejecting at the same time. Exactly. They were, as Nietzsche put it, they were running on the fumes of Christianity. So. Yeah. Can beauty then be used as an argument for God's existence, yes. like the moral argument? It's a powerful argument for God's existence because we all have experiences with beauty, and those mm -hmm. experiences are very potent. They're very powerful. Um, one quick last thing to, to mention. When it comes to these experiences with beauty and our concepts of objective argumentations for beauty and the de-evolution, by the way, again, if there is no objective standard of beauty, why am I creating art? Right? If you're a creator, why are you creating it? If I believe in objective beauty, I create art because it's beautiful. That's what I'm aiming for. I'm wanting to make something beautiful, and that moves me to God. If I don't believe it, then what's the purpose of art? The only purpose of art is to be shocking or subversive, right, which is why so many Hollywood movies are falling short. It's just to be shocking and subversive, right? It's to subvert expectations. That's it, and that makes it good. Or it's to be capitalistically driven, meaning I'm going after money. I'm trying to make money off of what I'm creating. This is, again, why Disney is making so many remakes. They wouldn't make them if people weren't going to see them and they were making tons of money off of them, right? They're, they're economically driven, and that's not driven by beauty. And the third one is power. I am creating art so that I can actually put a message into the art and convey it to you. 
right? So it's almost like hiding medicine within some sort of food, right? You're, you're, you're poisoning people with your message. Uh, but that none of those have to do with this idea of the objective standards of beauty. The Renaissance, even though the Piete has a message within it, that's not the point. The subject matter is the beauty itself. The message is carried along by it, but there's nothing in it that suggests it is message driven. Um, in architecture, it says form follows function, hmm. right? Once you figure out the function of something, then you can create aesthetic qualities that coincide with it. But that's how that has to roll. But anyway, um, well, thank you. We only got a couple minutes left, so let's try to tackle at least a couple questions. Yeah, we've questions. got actually we we've got two questions uh, so awesome. far. Yeah. So it looks like everyone was so enthralled with what you were saying that they didn't even <laughs> couldn't even think of questions to ask. <laughs> uh, uh, Kelsey wants to know. My grandpa died a few mm. years ago. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, but it's not. But it's his uh, birthday today. Uh, do people still celebrate birthdays in heaven? Or is he the same age as he was when he died? So is there yeah. heavenly birthday celebrations? So uh, we don't have anything in the scriptures that would suggest that there is or isn't. But the idea would be that there would be obvious celebrations within heaven, and your birthday still remains. So again, what's the purpose of uh, celebrating a birthday? It's the celebration of life. That's what it is. It's celebrating the fact that I was born, that I have being in existence, and that's a good thing. It's not merely celebrating the fact that I'm getting older, right? In fact, if that was the case, then most of us would stop having birthdays after we got to the age of like 40, right? Because <laughs> it's no longer exciting because I'm just decaying now. Um, so it would be just a celebration of decay. No, 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 we're just celebrating the fact that we are born, that we are alive, that we had a beginning to our existence and it's precious, it's in the image of God, there's something valuable about it and it should be preserved. So for that reason, I, I wouldn't say it would be unbiblical to believe that there would be a type of celebration like that within heavenly places, that people would still be celebrating the fact that they were born, that they are alive, and that they're alive in Christ now, and that eternal life had a beginning, right? It had a start date, and that start date was when they were uh, brought into the world. So I think that celebrations like that could possibly exist within heaven. We don't know for a fact, but I'm just saying that it, there's nothing unbiblical about believing that that could be the case, yeah. I like this passage in uh, John 11, 25 to 36. Jesus told her he's, um, I think, uh, uh, sorry, I lost it here. I am, the, I am the resurrection and life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of, of, of God and time, if heaven is eternity, even though we may experience what may feel like time, we don't know for certain, Right. Um, but we will not actually age right so it would be no reason to celebrate a birthday <clears throat> other than because there, you know we we'd, every day would be the birthday because we'd be celebrating life right. in, in, in an eternal now right and so it seems to me that <clears throat> we'd be celebrating the equivalent of a birthday right. every moment of every moment <laughs> so again we don't, don't know exactly how it works but in Revelation 21, it does talk about the tree of life bearing leaves according to season. So there is going to be some reckoning of time that occurs within heaven. It, it kind of boggles our minds. We don't fully mm. understand it. Indeed. But there is some sort of reckoning of time. And again, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that there would be people who, again, want to celebrate the fact that God has given them life. Mm. You know, they, they might celebrate that day. They might celebrate the day that they became a believer, right? Or maybe the day that they died, right? The day yeah. that they got to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Mm. But I, I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't discount celebrations like that i, I don't know though <laughs> you know? Uh, well here's a yeah. side note would, would it be appropriate for christians to celebrate a birthday of a deceased loved one mm -hmm. knowing that they are in heaven uh, i think so so how it works and this is me talking as a counselor 
as well as a pastor. When you lose someone, grief is a very complicated emotion and it goes on. And the reason why it goes on is because it's perpetual, right? The loss of that person continues. Uh, it's not like it ends. You're always going to miss that person if you genuinely love them. So there's never going to be a time in your life where you're no longer hurt at some level by the loss of a loved one. Uh, there's this weird modern myth that it's like there's a grieving period and then it's over. That's not true. Uh, there's always it's, it's perpetual because, again, that loss is always going to be felt to one extent or another. And sometimes having days on the calendar, uh, by the way, your mind already reckons that whether you realize it or not. And so either you're going to turn that day into a time of just like unconscious grief where you're just thinking you're unconsciously thinking about how much you miss this person and therefore it's going to emanate in depression and despair and maybe even anger and frustration at the relationships you do have or you can consciously make a point to say they're gone and i'm going to take this day to, to celebrate to remember why i miss this person right what was so good about this person's ex my experience with this person in my life and I'm going to commemorate that because I'm thankful for the time I had with them and I have a promise of eternity with them. So you can consciously shift that into a grief with hope if you do it. So I, I think that there's a positivity to that, um, but it, it, everyone functions and deals with things on a on different level. So, what if what if you have tremendous amount of regret as like for example, I have mm -hmm. a hard time thinking about my dad's birthday. I choose not to yeah. because. I have good reason to believe that he died a non-believer. Yeah. <clears throat> we were very estranged. He rejected me because of my faith. Hmm. And I have nothing but regret from yeah. that entire relationship. And so how do you, yeah. you know, how do you <laughs> no, and there's, there's put a, balance a positive here. spin on that? <laughs> so there's a balance here, and that balance does deal with your, your mind. So part of what we call catharsis, right, actually purging ourselves of these emotions means that I'm going right up to the edge of a cliff and I'm staring into the abyss without falling into it, right? And I'm, I'm observing it and I'm allowing it to move me. But if I fall off the edge, then that defeats the purpose, right? There's a reason why we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's because the beauty takes us in. But if you fall over, then it's no longer beautiful. It's your demise, right? Uh, that's how emotions work. Some people, right, we all have this limit of how far we could push ourselves. There are some minds that struggle with a lot of anxiety and it's hard for them to be present. So their capacity to move up against their grief is actually really limited. And it's very easy for them to get sucked in a whirlpool of emotions and not be able to pull themselves out. So you need to use a lot of caution, especially if you have that kind of mindset. Mm. But if you're dealing with a lot of regret over this person, there might be some wisdom in going up a little bit to that cliff of looking at it a little bit and asking for God to do a continual work of healing in your life, mm. right? Help me to, to grieve appropriately over what happened. Help me to deal with my regret in an appropriate way, God. Help me to give these things to you. Comfort me, soothe me, allow me to, to deal with this and to move forward in my life. Uh, because again, pushing things out doesn't tend to work. Um, you know, Dr. Don Carlson, who does a uh, radio show on New, uh, I think it's New Life Radio, uh, he said, when you bury your mo emotions, you bury them alive. And I've, I've always liked that saying, you know, it's very true. You know, like you, you can't. You mean Randy Carlson? Randy Carlson, yeah. On Family Life? Yeah, Family Life. I, I know, I'm like all over the place. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's correct. You, you know, you can't get rid of emotion just by ignoring it. But you can deal with it. But it's just what level can you? And be mm -hmm. careful, right? If you're someone who gets lost in their emotions, try to deal with someone that you love, right? Try to talk it out mm. with someone that you love so that you're not spiraling, so that you're not fixating on your regret and allowing it to just, uh, become a feedback loop of negative emotion that cripples you. 
thank you for that. Um, John Brighton, one, uh, Brinton, sorry, John, John <laughs> Brinton, uh, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. Uh, Galatians 5.14, a great understandable verse, yet so difficult to follow if we happen to have a neighbor that is a complete jerk. <laughs> <clears throat> no, absolutely. So um, there's practicality to the law as well. There, I, I would like to give more time to this question. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit tomorrow as well. But I'll say for, for now is that the main quality of the law is treating someone correctly, right? That's the idea of justice, is treating someone appropriately. So what we recognize in another human being is that they're made in the image of God, and therefore they have requisite value, right? And that value, regardless of how they treat you, still remains, and I can't diminish that value through my behavior. So I need to treat you appropriately. Again, it doesn't mean I can't push against someone, it doesn't mean I can't challenge them, and it doesn't mean I can't even seek justice on account of a wrong that they've done towards me. But what it means is that there's, there's an underlying value that I recognize in that other person, as well as the fact that I know that they can be saved, right? So it doesn't mean I have to have warm fuzzies towards the person. I guarantee you that Jesus did not have warm fuzzies towards the people who were crucifying him. But it's the idea, and Martin Luther King, if, if you want further reading on this, listen to a sermon on loving your enemies. Uh, it's so good, it, it'll change your life, it really will. And he talks about how love is willing the, the good of another, so even in the midst of your anger towards someone, you could still will that they will be saved and repent. Great. Thank you so much, Peter, for all your incredible insights, especially the personal insight on dealing with grief and loss. And We really uh, hope you enjoyed our program today. Please tune in again tomorrow. And if you have a question, please chime in. We'll be here same place, same time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.